Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate welcomes back author Dave Thompson to discuss his book, Joan Jett, The Unauthorized Biography. Nate and Dave discuss the rise and fall of Joan's first band, The Runaways, and how she pivoted to mainstream success in the 80s. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm joined by Dave Thompson, who's coming back to discuss his book, Bad Reputation, The Unauthorized Biography of Joan Jett. Dave, welcome back. Hello there. Good to have you back. And Joan Jett, this is the biggest feminist icon in rock and roll history. Yes. Um, There's not really anything you can add to that, is there? It's like, she is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, although I suppose you could probably argue Patty Smith. Yeah, and it's interesting that the two of them have kind of a fraught relationship, as you reveal in the book. I don't know if they still do. Certainly at the time, uh, you know, the Runaways, Patty Smith was very dismissive of them. Uh, that's her guitarist, Ivan Kroll, told a story of how he actually liked them and sort of got told off for doing so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's one of those classic coastal rivalries. You've got the New York Queen of Punk and Patti Smith and the L.A. Queens of Noise and the Runaways. And uh, they did not get along. Also, a generational difference. Patti Smith being about 10 years older than the girls. Yeah. And, well, most and- of the new thing was. When you think when you think back, you know, we all think, oh, young punks, and you know they were all compared to uh, compared to me. You know, listening to them, it's like, oh, it's like listening to my granddad. No matter how much I like them, they're like <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's take it back to Joan. So she starts very early. She's not older. How young was she when she got started? 
um, do you mean started in the Runaways or? Yeah, when when she became a professional rock and roll musician. And she was sixteen. I mean, yeah. I mean, they were. I mean, they were all young. And, yeah, and that's what um, Kim Fowley, who put the band together, wanted. Yeah, you, know, you know, the kids that went to the English disco and places like that who represented the audience that he was hoping to reach or part of the audience anyway. And tell us a little bit about more about Kim Fowley, who's the self-appointed Svengali of the Runaways. Well, Kim Fowley had been around for what must have felt like forever back then. I mean, since the early 60s, he had always been a major, not even a major presence, a major force on the L.A. scene without really doing much that the general public could say, oh, that was Kim Fowley. But he was behind They're Coming to Take Me Away, haha, which was a huge hit in, in 1965, 66. And he, he produced a lot of bands. He came to the UK and produced Slade before anybody had really heard of them. And it didn't help because nobody had heard of them afterwards either for a few <laughs> years. <laughs> but yeah, he produced a, he produced a single with them. Um, he worked with uh, Andrew Lou Goldham, who was the Stones manager. They actually recorded a single together. Um, in fact, Al Stewart, the folky, told me a really funny story. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago, and he said that he was at a club and. Andrew Oldham walked in, and of course, everybody's like, oh my goodness, it's Andrew Luke Oldham, because he was so charismatic. You know, he was the man behind the stones. So he, Andrew was coming down the stairs, Al was walking up the stairs, and he just said, hello, Bo, how's Peep? Because that's the name they put the single out under, uh, and Andrew and Kim Fowley, Bo, Bo and Peep. Hello, Bo, how's Peep? And Andrew just sort of stopped and looked at her. Oh, <laughs> how did anyone know this? <laughs> and yeah, and Fowley also did Alley Oop, which was uh, a, a big hit for him very early yeah. on. Discovered Paul Revere and the Raiders, but had him swiped away yeah. from him. And uh, the same with yeah. David Gates of Bread was one of the first yeah. picked him up. Or, or I, I think Gates picked Fowley up hitchhiking. So he's this L.A. rock figure. Yeah. Uh, food who you could say never really got his due. Um, and he tried to launch other bands during the 70s and nothing ever really stuck. It's like The Runaways were almost his revenge. I've tried everything else. Let's see them ignore this. 16-year-olds in corsets. And um, it worked. It certainly got a lot of attention. And you mentioned Rodney's English Disco. This is the context the Runaways come out of. Tell us about this club and Rodney Bingenheimer. Um, well, Rodney Bingenheimer, the, the mayor of Sunset Strip, etc., um, was just a major, he was a, you know, a major DJ. He was like Fowley in a way. He helped guide the taste of young L.A., um, and one of the ways he did it was he opened an English disco, which, as its name suggests, was devoted to English music at the time, which was glam rock. So if you wanted to hear T-Rex, Susie Quattro, you know, 
David Bowie's pre-fame hits. I mean, all of those things. You went to the disco. And over the years, I've talked to several people who their first trip to L.A. and some of the, oh, you've got to come to the English disco. And people knew who they were simply because of Rodney Bingenheimer playing the records. So he was creating little local stars out of Britain's glam rockers and in Susie Quattro's case, you know, America's glam rockers, although America didn't realize it at the time. And Joan and the rest of the Runaways were pretty much you know, the girls who went to the club, danced to the records, loved glam rock. And that's one of the sort of unique things about the scene. And coming from the perspective of 2021, there's two scenes, like we've talked about music history all the way through, and there's two scenes that their sexual mores just do not fly today. One of them is the gospel music scene of the 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, where that's where Aretha Franklin started having babies at 13 and Billy Preston starts sleeping with you know various adult men at age 12 or 13. And this scene, which is girls like Joan Larkin, Joan Jett's given name, and others, you know, this is where Jimmy Page was meeting his 13-year-old girlfriend, where Iggy Pop yeah. and David Bowie Iggy were meeting at 13. Because, I mean, it's such a difficult subject to talk about seriously now, but in a way, glam rock in particular, more than I think any other genre of then contemporary rock and roll, glam rock was pure sex. You know, Mark Boland's Get It On had to be retitled in this country to bang a gong because radio was like, ooh, it's a song about having sex. Um, John and Only Dancing was, you know, a gay man dancing with a girl and trying to, you know, reassure his boyfriend, I'm only dancing. Um, I mean, when it just cut across the board, even bands like The Sweet, you know, who effectively looked like bricklayers at Halloween, but you know, they had the they had the guitarist who did sort of the whole effeminate. We just haven't got a clue, and it was very. You can look at it now and say, you know, it's almost homophobic because he was mimicking the sort of the way people thought gay people should talk. But at the time, it was an honest reflection of the culture, both pro, you know, pro as much as con, probably more so. Yeah, um, homosexuality had only been legalized in England a few years before, which is, you know, from our perspective, really hard to get your head around. But, and, you know, and on top of the sexual revolution of the 60s, this is this extremely young generation that's given this total freedom just yeah, turned I, loose. I, think, I mean, David Bowie, you know, he gets credit for everything, but in this case, he deserves it. You know, he went, he did an interview with Melody Maker when he was still pretty much an unknown. He'd had one hit two years earlier. Nobody really cared about David Bowie anymore. And he came out and said, you know, I'm bisexual. And everyone went, ho-hum, who are you? But then less than 18 months later, he turned up on Top of the Pops at a time when that show had like 15 million viewers. Doing Starman, draped his arm around, across Mick Ronson's shoulders. And everybody who saw it was just like, 
oh my God, we'd never seen men hugging like that on television. Yeah, certainly not television that was aimed at you know, teeny boppers. It was like utterly revolutionary, and so many British performers of a certain age will tell you that that was the moment that they understood how they felt or how you know how they were going to feel sexually. It opened so many doors. And yeah, but that reason, I think, is that's one of the reasons why Bowie didn't really make it in this country because ah, it's the fag spaceman. Um, people who worked for him at the time talk about his first tour, and they actually had pickets outside gigs, you know, screaming at this, you know, this gay alien who was going to pervert America's children. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was not something America was ready for in 1972. And let's hear, um, real quick, I want to get my song snippet in. Let's hear the first song Joan Jett ever wrote. This is The Runaways doing it, You Drive Me Wild. was the runaways doing you drive me wild which is the first song that a 15 year old joan larkin ever wrote when she picked up a guitar which to me as somebody who's been struggling with a guitar for you know 40 years and never written a single memorable song it's it's uh <laughs> pretty uh <laughs> it's quite remarkable isn't it i mean across that whole I mean, we've jumped subjects here rather rather neatly but um across that whole album when you think that all but one song was written by the Runaways, who were you near know, 15, 16 year old girls, 17, um, it's amazing. Yeah, it's, you know, it's Dead, Dead End Justice, which is the closing track and was is like their epic. You listen to it, and you, know, you could see maybe change some of the lyrics around and maybe sharpen it a bit. But you can see you know, Phil Linnett writing that, or Bob Geldof, or you know, Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, it was, it was awesome. practically a mini opera. Yeah, it's 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 amazing, and they didn't get the credit at the time. I mean, let's go back a little bit, though. I want to talk about the the sort of history of Hollywood rock and roll. Um, you know, this this is a town that was one of the birthplaces of R&B in the 40s. But by the 60s, it's become a pretty white scene. I mean, you know, it's, it's where the Penguins produced Earth Angel and Richie Valens had his hits in his very short life there. Richard Berry wrote Louie Louie. But by the early 60s, this is the city of Phil Spector, Jan and Dean, the Beach Boys. Yeah. Then in the mid-60s, it's Birds, Love, and The Doors, Frank Zappa. Then by the early 70s, you've got this scene that, that gets a lot of critical kicking these days, but or not so much now, but over the past 20, 30 years, the Linda Ronstadt, Eagles, Warren Zevon, Jackson Brown, singer-songwriter, country rock scene has come in for a lot of abuse. And but not necessarily undeservedly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely... <laughs> It's definitely gotten a lot of exposure. It's not my cup yeah. of tea, 
um, I've come to appreciate a little more than I did growing up. But the runaways represent this cutting edge. They're bleeding edge. They're ahead. I mean, when they form, nobody's thinking punk rock, even though the ad that, that brings them together was placed in a magazine, Who Put the Bomb, which is Greg Shaw's publication that I yeah. think, along with Cream, laid out the aesthetic for punk rock. Well, Greg was very much, Greg is another of those people like Fowley, like uh, Rodney Bingenheimer, who I think was a lot more influential than people realized. You know, serious journalists did not listen to the music that, you know, Fowley was making, Bingenheimer was playing, and Greg Shaw was writing about, but the kids did. And, you know, you're 14, 15, growing up in Hollywood, you know, the, the soul of American glamour. And what represents you on the radio? Tequila Sunrise. <laughs> you're going to rebel. <laughs> and Rodney's English Disco was one of those places where they were able to go. They were able to see what was happening in the UK. And not even New York, but the UK. And it was this sort of fabulous explosion of men wearing sequins and singing songs that are dirty. You know, Alvin Stardust, who, I mean, he was like 40 when he broke through in 1973. He'd been a star before the Beatles. He came back, first time on Top of the Pops, head to toe black leather. He was practically running a bondage, a bondage room on the stage in Top of the Fox doing cuckoo and he held his microphone like really strangely and he just glowered. He looked so incredibly evil. And it was just like, oh my God, this is on television. This is worse than Bowie in a way. And, you know, LA, they didn't get to see the Top of the Pops performance, but they got to see the pictures because he, that guy posed... He could have posed in the Olympics. It was, he was brilliant. He just looked apart. And they heard the record, which was half spirit in the sky, half crisp and cozy. Um, and that sort of thing just hit young people in L.A. so hard. Not all of them, but, you know, enough. And again, that's what the Runaways were tapping into. It was sex and glamour all the stuff that you did not get from listening to Witchy Woman. <laughs> Indeed. Sorry, Eagles fans, but it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, uh, they were sort of culminating things that were coming out of the 60s. And this scene is a new generation of kids. And Joan Jett, the young Joan Larkin, she had actually come from the East Coast where she saw the New York Dolls, who were New York's yes. um, leading glam band, play live. And I believe that's the one where she had her conversion experience and realized, wow, you can make this many people happy at one time. I want to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they moved, family moved out to California but you know, what was there for her? There was Rodney's. So, you know, she started going there. And then, yeah, you know, Kim Fowley came in and the rest is uh, a very strange history. <laughs> Indeed. And and 
you know, they're a manufactured group in the tradition of, you know, Moby Grape or even the Sex Pistols, where a manager had a vision and starts assembling pieces. And he meets Joan in the club. She's a face on the scene, as you guys would say in yeah. England. She's somebody who's notable in the club. And he he puts out his ad. Who's the first person that he introduces her to that becomes the nucleus of the runaway? The cherry, wasn't it? Was it Cherry or Sandy? That's it was it. Sandy. <laughs> Cher- cherry comes in later. Yes, it was Sandy West. <laughs> yeah, and they went and rehearsed in um, the West family gar- garage. Uh, my American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the garage. In, uh, in, the in garage. Huntington Beach, this is a town that's later going to produce Black Flag. Um, yes. And which has now become a, a hotbed of COVID denial. And so it's it's a classic American suburb. <laughs> and I think that's where you actually realize the runaway's impact is that so many bands, and I won't say similar, but so many punk bands formed in their wake. Uh, Derby Crash from the Germs was a huge fan. Yeah, I went to all their shows. Joan produ- ended up producing the first Germs album. Yeah, and the, and the only album. And you know, and the thing with the Runaways is they come together. They get Sandy West and Joan, who immediately lock in. And, and one of the things that you know, you quote Sandy West saying that she she tells Kim Fowley right away, "This girl's timing is perfect." Like even though Joan is just a beginning guitarist. She's one of these people who's immediately so talented. You know, you hear about these people that are like, pick up an instrument and and six minutes later they're on the bandstand. Joan Jett is one of these people. Yeah, are they um, annoying people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can play one tune on piano. <laughs> it's like it's taken me fifty years to master that. Yeah, and, and you know, so Joan is. Obviously talented, even though she's only beginning to add skills. And originally, a girl named Sue Thomas is playing bass. And she's going to go on to bigger and better things. But she's got too much stage fright to stay with um, the Runaways and later reemerges as Michael Steele of the Bangles. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, a lot of talent is gravitating. You know, it's like... One of the things doing the show, it seems like that the really talented people attract other talented people like gravity. And and this is yeah. happening in this case. And then Lita Ford is the next one who's you know going to go on to become – she auditions originally as a bassist to replace Sue Thomas, but quickly becomes apparent she should be the lead guitarist. And Lita and Sandy form this heavy metal axis in the band that's in opposition to Joan's sort of punk leanings. And then they bring in Sherry Curry, who the day she shows up, Kim Fowley and Joan Jett write this song, Cherry Bomb, that becomes an anthem for the Runaways. And let's go ahead and hear Cherry Bomb by the Runaways.
And that was Cherry Bomb by The Runaways, which is really too obvious a song for me to pick. And I had something different in mind, but it just fit in so perfectly with the story we were telling. I just I just went with it. So forgive me. But Cherry, but Cherry Bomb was so integral to the story. I, again, to sort of you know, go back to London in 1976, I'd been reading about The Runaways in the British press and you know, the occasional American import. And... No one was nice about them. Everyone was like, yeah, they're just a bunch of kids. Yeah, it's all about the corset. Grumble, grumble. It's not rock and roll. And um, I sat in the car one day and listening to Capital Radio and the DJ played Cherry Bomb. And it's like, this can't even be the same band because it was such a great record. And in 19, yeah, at that point in 76, must have been September, None of the British punk bands had released their first record. The Dams was on its way. The Pistols would be a few weeks later. There was no musical. You had no idea what punk rock sounded like unless you went to the shows. And there weren't many bands playing at that time either. It was the Pistols, the Damned, the Clash. I'd seen the Clash opening for somebody and they weren't very good. And you heard this and it's like, this is what punk rock should sound like. And of course... It was. It was a little more polished, I think. But, you know, that is... That was the American curse at that time. People hadn't really started making really sort of grungy-sounding, I did this in my basement on a really bad tape recorder records. So it was, it was polished, but it had that energy and, you know, whoever was playing on the record, and it turns out it was the Runaways, could play. Yeah, um, they're very much, you know, the, the Jackie Fox, who's the girl they ultimately bring in as a bass player, she's the only runaway who doesn't play on the record, but that's really not any different from Sid Vicious not being able to play bass on no. the Sex Pistol. No. You know, um, and, you, you know, and she could play live, though. I went to see them on the UK, their first UK tour, and she was playing bass. Or if she wasn't, she did a really good impersonation of a bass player. Yeah, and yeah. <laughs> couldn't, see hiding, couldn't see anyone hiding behind the amplifier playing for her. So I'm guessing it was her. Yeah, and it's just like Michael Davis of the MC5 10 years earlier played on their live album, but didn't play in the studio just because he wasn't up to the timekeeping standards they wanted in the studio or it would take too many takes. So it's, yeah. it, you know, just because they needed somebody to help out their bass player in the studio doesn't mean they can't play live. And, and, and that's and what they do. That happens, that happens a, a lot more than we're aware. You know, there are always rumors that so-and-so couldn't quite cut it. So they brought in a session man just to do it. And a lot of time the rumors turn out to be true. Absolutely. Like uh, Lou Reed's guitarist who came in and helped the Runaways with the arrangement for rock and roll. I believe he's the one who stepped in to play uh, some of the guitar solos in Aerosmith's version of Train Kept a Rollin'. So, you know, it's <laughs> <laughs> not just the Runaways that, that need some session help. And of course, the other group from America that came over and, and forgive me if I, the way this is going to come out, but showed the Brits how to do punk was the Ramones who come over in 76 and, and yeah. play some big shows in London. And the Ramones, well, the Runaways are there just a few weeks later. 
I say big shows. They open for the Flaming Groovies. <laughs> uh, I mean, first again, I saw the Ramones that summer, and uh, they were amazing because again, see nothing like it. Um, but they were very different to the Runaways. The Ramones, you, the Ramones, you were sort of in on the joke. Yeah, you know, it was comic cuts, and you know every song rigorously timed and ideally spaced. It was it was very much a show, whereas with, when the Runaways played, it was a gig, and there, there was a difference. The Ramones, you got the you got the feeling they had rehearsed this down to the last one, two, three, four. Whereas with the Runaways, there was always the sense that this could fall apart or it could be brilliant, and it lasted throughout the show, and that's really what a gig should be. There needs to be a sense of danger for the performer, at least, and the feeling that they're they're holding it together, but it would only take one thing to make it fall apart, and then who knows what will happen. And, I mean, that's what the Pistols had. That's what the Damned had. And the Runaways had it as well. It's very much, that's the punk rock knife edge, you know, where lightning yeah. is captured in a bottle. And let's take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, I want to talk about some of the other obstacles, some of the other things that made it hard for the runaways. And we still need to go back also and talk about their Kim Fowley as drill sergeant and the way they were trained before they did these tours. So let's hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. And before the runaways get to England, they coalesce, Kim Fowley and Jojet put this band together. And, bef you know, they do their album very quickly and they're out on the road very quickly, but there's still a period where they're essentially in Kim Fowley's boot camp. And this guy, you know, he's a six foot five inch sort of Frankenstein looking freaky type guy who with military experience, and this is the 70s, there's no hall monitors. Like their parents were promised there would be chaperones, et cetera. There was none of that. This is Kim Fowley, frankly, being abusive with these kids. It's easy to uh, – you can't defend what he is said to have done, but he did it with the best intentions. And what he was doing was no different to a lot of producers with younger you – know, if the Runaways had been boys – 15, 16, 17-year-old boys, and we heard the stories that we hear about the Runaways, we, you know, we wouldn't think anything of it. Well, we would now, but we think less. Yeah, yeah it's certainly was, not much different than what Lou Pearlman did with NSYNC and the Backstreet Boys in the 90s. So 20 years later, yeah. this kind of treatment is still... I mean, it's maybe Pearlman was... A, yeah, it's... You know, and it's not really any different from the way Jackie Chan was trained as a in a Chinese opera background. I mean, this no, or yeah, I hate to hate to raise the specter of Phil Spector, but oh, that was a bad pun, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even intentional. I'm sorry. Um, hate to raise Spector, but you know, he could also be very, very tough in the studio, and you know, he was tough with. He was as tough with the Ramones as he was with the Crystals, in a way. 
you know, maybe even more so. If I think if you're a, you know, if you're a very driven person who has a vision, you want that vision to be crystallized by the people you have chosen to do it. And if they get it wrong, you shout at them. Think of what school teachers were like at that time. I remember what school teachers were yeah. like at that time. And there was hitting and there was yelling and, yeah. you know, um, and black rubbers flying across the room. Um, I just saw yeah. one day there was a kid, kid sitting by the window. Um, somebody threw a snowball. It broke the window. The kid was cut. He had blood on his shirt. The teacher came over and hit him around the head for playing with red ink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounds about right. So, yeah, so when the cosseted children of today hear about these horrible things that were visited on the runaways, remember the context of the 1970s. This is a more violent time. Uh, in a lot of ways. And Fowley's goal with this abuse was to be a drill sergeant, to harden them, to steal them, because he knew they were going to face incredible sexism. But I don't even think Fowley was ready for the extent of the sexism. Like the corset you mentioned, that's something that Sherry Curry personally, she chose that. That was on her initiative to wear this corset. And you know, Betty Davis, Miles Davis's ex-wife, is going through a similar thing on the funk scene around this time, where she's coming out with this sexually strong, what we would now see, you know, as, as what Cardi B is doing um, yeah. with WAP. But at the time, the idea of a sexually brazen woman performing on stage, people just thought she was, they were prostitutes or strippers. And so, you know, when these, yeah. when these, yeah, I mean, t- t- describe the reaction that fans had the audiences had to the runaways in their yeah, first game. Fans, fans is unfair to those of, those of us who liked them. Um, audiences, it, more so in America, I think, than in Britain, and we'll get to that in a bit. But audiences over here were very, very hostile because, you know, they'd come to see rock and roll, not a bunch of girls pretending. And, you know, because they weren't playing... I know whatever audiences expected back then, fog hat covers and 20-minute drum solos. They weren't a real band. And because they were female, they weren't a real band. Because you have to remember that despite what a lot of history says, you know, the Runaways were far from the first all-female rock band. And in fact, they came along just as Fanny were... I guess, winding down as a force in the land. But Fanny, who were admittedly a little older and did not dress quite so provocatively, they still ran into a lot of your women, what are you doing, as opposition. The Runaways just got that magnified so much. And the when you think about it, there's a club full of, how old did you have to be to go to a gig in those days? Like 18, 21? Yeah, very from you know, state eight, to state. But, yeah, but let's say 21 and over, drunken men at a rock and roll show screaming abuse at what were basically still schoolgirls. <laughs> when you want yeah. to talk about sexism and no matter how harsh Kim Fowley was to them, you think of those audiences and what was going through their head at the time, some of which we can't even say on, you know, can't even say. <laughs> um, 
Um, that I think is the you know, the true horror of the early Runaways, and Fowley did his best, I think, to prepare them for it. I mean, there are the stories that you know, they would walk in and he would just scream the worst abuse he could think of at them. And when they said why, he'd say, well, you've not heard anything yet. Wait till you start playing gigs. And he, in a way, he hardened them to it. And how do you how do you harden somebody to those kind of reactions unless you show them what that reaction is going to be? Just say, well, you're going to go out there and people are going to shout, get your knickers off, darling. That doesn't prepare anybody for you know, what would happen. Yeah, absolutely not. And I, I don't want to turn this into an apology, apology for no. for Fowley. Um, exactly. I was just thinking exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're just trying to give some context here. And and the thing is, you know, in the, this is the same era where the Ramones are pelted with you know, D-cell batteries when they opened up for Edgar Winter. So the Runaways not only are getting the the sexism, um, but they're getting this visceral anti-punk reaction that is, yeah. a, is a big thing and a very real thing uh, in the States at this point in time. But let's go ahead and hear our next song. And this is The Arrows doing I Love Rock and Roll, which is obviously the song that's going to make Joan Jett a superstar many years later. But this is the 1975 of original version of the song, which was a B-side written by Alan Merrill. I knew she must have been about 17. Mm. The beat was going strong, playing my favorite song. And I could tell it wouldn't be long till she was with me, yeah, me. And I could tell it wouldn't be long till she was with me, yeah, me. And that was the original version of I Love Rock and Roll by the Arrows with Alan Merrill. And this is, and you know, it was a B-side that was buried away. Their producer was Mickey Most, who had a system. And we talked about this last time we were on with the Jeff Beck group, where Mickey Most liked to control everything. He picked out the songs. He generally liked his pop groups to have outside songwriters writing their hits. And so even though Alan Merrill had been a star in Japan with Vodka Collins and wrote his own songs... That didn't hold any water with Mickey Most. And the song that is later proven to be an immense hit is buried. And Joan Jett happens to see it on TV while she's uh, touring England. Tell us a little bit about how, what drew her to that song and what she did with it. And why, why didn't the Runaways record that song? I don't think they wanted to. And you know, maybe Joan just wanted to keep it as a secret weapon. Um, I mean, it's a, it was a great song, and yes, it was buried away on a B-side, but Arrows had their own TV show. And um, just by chance, she caught an episode of it. They had like a six-week uh, yes, six show, two seasons. And just by chance, she caught it, loved the record. And what was your question? <laughs> Sorry. I, I just wanted to get you talking about the song and 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 you know the Mickey Mouse thing, but I want to go back to this 
tension within the band because mm. the Runaways are hit with everything. You know, they're seen as a hype. Um, they're women, so they're getting all the sexism. They're seen as punk in some quarters, and certainly their record label jumps on that as soon as it becomes, you know, by se- late 76, late 77, they think, oh, this is how we're going to market this. This is punk. But within the band, they didn't see themselves as punk. Um, not all of them. Lita Ford and Sandy West were Black Sabbath and Deep Purple fans. Now, Joan Jett liked that stuff, and she loved Free. I think um, Free's All Right Now was the first song she learned to play on guitar. But she got the vision of punk rock and wanted to go in that direction. And, you know, I think grunge later showed us that heavy metal, hard rock, and punk rock were really just cousins. They weren't distinctly different forms, and there was no absolute reason that bands couldn't draw on both influences but at the time in the 70s it wasn't just a musical divide it was a cultural divide and the runaways are split um so that contributes to the forces that ultimately tear them apart yeah the second album the second runaways album which was really the one where lita and uh, sandy's instincts took over um i always found disappointing I mean, you're right, there was that divide between punk and metal, and it was quite ferocious at times. But I remember going to see a band called Penetration, who actually had a female singer. Um, They used to like playing just the riff from Smoke in the Water. And people who didn't know it it was Smoke in the Water and therefore Poisonous, uh, the COVID of the day, would be pogoing to it quite happily and going, yeah! (laughs) <laughs> so you know, it was heavy metal as a concept as opposed to heavy metal as a musical form you know, don't forget the second Clash album was produced by Sandy Perlman of the Blue Oyster Cult fame um, and there were a lot of other links you know, Motorhead who also straddled that divide between punk and metal and a lot of other things as well and then you had the new wave of British heavy metal, which came up at the end of the decade, which itself was fired as much by punk as it was by an appreciation for old Atomic Rooster B-sides. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. And yet groups like Iron Maiden that were at the forefront of that vociferously denied they had anything to do with punk, even while they copied the tempos uh, and, and the black mm. leather. And... Um, but I want to go back to one other thing. You know, they signed on Mercury Records, which uh, was a major label at the time, which is the label that New York Dolls had been on. They had no luck with the New York Dolls. But Danny Rosencrantz was the boss of Mercury. And do you remember the the anecdote for why he was so open to an all-female rock and roll band? Because Jimi Hendrix had told him, wait till girl, girls start playing guitar. I believe it was that, uh, that was Danny, wasn't it? Yeah, and they did an yeah. acid trip together in Albuquerque in the late sixties. Yeah, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I mean, and again, you know, I have to bring up Fanny because you know they had great guitar player. You know, it's like they just don't get the kudos they deserve now. But Fanny, in a way, 
you can't say they paved the way for the runaways because ultimately they suffered sort of a similar fate, just less vociferously. But in terms of, you know, wait till girls start playing guitar, play those first three Fanny albums. And if you don't look at the cover, it could, you know, it could be men. And I think yeah. that's the thing with the runaways as well. If you didn't look at the cover, it was... It was, you know, it was a band band with a you know, with a chick singer. God, I can get really seventies here, can't I? <laughs> <laughs> I'll try yeah. not to do that again. I uh, we forgive you. We forgive you. Yeah. And so, so Fanny was sort of more gently ignored because they fit in with the whole denim scene, and they. Something about the way the Runaways combined their sexuality, the timing so that they were at least perceived as punk rock. And honestly, if you listen to the Runaways and the Dictators albums side by side, the Runaways are clearly more punk rock than the Dictators. Oh, are. yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I never liked the Dictators. Yeah. Me too. I, I don't want to kick them while they're down. Every I've almost liked them a couple of times, but but they're very much a, a key part of of the birth of the punk scene in New York, and yeah. you know the Runaways um, are at, at least as punk on that first album as them, if not more so. And you know this is a time when ACDC was being called punk when they were touring England in '76 and '77. So if you'd seen ACDC at that time, you could understand why. I mean, they were they were another of those bands that was just such a breath of fresh air when they first came over, and um, you know, even so, you know, the little bit of dressing up they did. There was something, there was yeah, you know, there was something subversive about seeing you know a schoolboy up on stage playing guitar. Yeah, and in a way, that's what the Runaways. Kind of what the Runaways did. It's like, okay, what's going to look? What is going to be subversive? Okay, corset. Bring out the corset. Yeah, it all comes back to the corset. I think a lot of the problems they ran into and their youth. You know, they were pretty girls. They were girls, and um, audiences didn't think schoolgirls should be a band. Yeah, I was like, except in Japan where they were massive stars and they actually tour Japan and yeah. that's all the only moment they really get to enjoy any of the limelight. And yet that's the moment when Jackie Fox breaks down and can't take it anymore and quits the band. Yeah. yeah. Which was a shame because, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, she was good for the band on stage. She looked good. She, she was kind of the, she was almost like the Bill Wyman of the band. She didn't go out of her way to be noticed, but you and you noticed her because of that. Uh, everybody else would be, you know, like throwing shapes, I believe is the term, and you know, just posing and strutting and you know, doing the whole sort of rock and roll thing. And she would just be standing there, and you know, like you know, the top of her, you know. I remember in London, the only time she really moved except to play bass was um, the uh, strap of her top kept falling down on one arm, so she'd like pull it back up, and, and that was it for movement. And it was great just to see this you know, almost statue. 
in the in the maelstrom that was the rest of the band. Absolutely, it's a classic, you know, Killer Kane of the New York Dolls, John Entwistle yeah. of the Who. I mean, the, the statuesque bass yeah. player is a classic, and we do need to mention that you know Joan has recently come out, in not Joan, a Jackie has recently come out in the past few years and alleged that Kim Fowley not only abused her, but actually sexually assaulted her in front of everybody. And Sherry Curry and Joan and Lita have all either not responded or denied that they saw anything, but there was massive trauma there. So I don't want to minimize that. And, and, you know, Jackie's got her experience. I'd hate to say, you know, it was a surprise when she said that, because I mean, those were all, there was always the rumors about what Fowley was really after with the band. And um, I mean, it was horrifying when we actually found out the true nature of it. But yeah, again, you know, man has all girl group. There's going to be fairly foul rumors about what happens. And he started a lot of those rumors himself. And yeah, Fowley's yeah. behavior, <laughs> you know, throughout the whole multi decades of his career, he's not quite a Jimmy Savile level predator or no. Gary Glitter type, but still definitely worse on the spectrum than, say, Jimmy Page or Iggy Pop because it wasn't consensual, you know. And, and uh, so the damage. This this lifestyle and this music does to people's lives is is real, and it you know definitely yeah. with young teenage girls getting hit by like this. But we we're coming short on time, and I really want to get to Joan's career because it's it's interesting. And let's hear Joan and and the, uh, the Sex Pistols. This is one of the first solo things she did after the Runaways completely fell apart, and she records with uh, Paul Cook and Steve Jones of the Sex Pistols. And this is the early version of I Love Rock and Roll with Joan Jett. And that was Joan Jett's first attempt at I Love Rock and Roll uh, with the two-fourths of the Sex Pistols, half the Sex Pistols. And the Runaways fall apart. They actually managed to do four albums. Sherry Curry quits shortly after, after Jackie Fox leaves. That throws the balance off. They become more and more metal because Sandy West and Lita Ford want to do that. And ultimately, the band collapses. Joan picks up the pieces. She she does a she gets a deal to do a movie soundtrack and act in a movie. This almost kills her. She gets a heart infection, is hospitalized for six weeks. But in the course of that, she meets a guy named Kenny Laguna, who becomes her true musical partner. Tell us about Kenny Laguna and his background and resume. Um, Kenny was another of those people who'd been around, you know, through the sixties. Um, great pop man. Whereas, you know, Fowley was more of a sort of I say Fowley was, you know, very image focused and outrage focused. Whereas Laguna understood the the value of a great song. And I think perhaps after the Runaways experience, so did Joan. So they just they just clicked. And, and, and they immediately yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say, you know, and the records they made together were 
you know, if you did the cover of, you know, Tommy James and the Shondells, Crimson and Clover, um, but all of the records they made were in that, not that musical mold, but in that same sense of, this is pop, this is fun, you're going to love it. And also hard rocking. I mean, they, you know, do yep. bad reputation around this time. They build a band called the Black Hearts Around Her. They get a British record deal um, and can't get an American record deal. And Kenny Laguna just wants to be the producer, but he ends up becoming the manager. And he ultimately prints up the record himself, forms his own record label with Joan Blackheart Records. And they're selling the thing out of the trunk of the car. And one thing that's fascinating about their breakthrough, she moves to New York because they can play a lot of places. It's not like LA where there's San Diego an hour away. And otherwise it's five, six, seven, eight hours to the next gig, or you have to go to Bakersfield or something. From New York, there's all pl- kinds of places you can go, Rhode Island, Connecticut, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. And they're actually getting these records played on the radio you know, WNU-FM, WLIR-FM, this is the last window where an indie act can get played on FM rock radio, and they absolutely yeah. seize the moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a brilliant campaign. And I, again, I think that was Laguna just using his, his knowledge of how to break a record in America, which was very, very different to how it became just a few years later. And was MTV going when they first said it wasn't, was it? Because MTV is where things started to shift. Yeah, MTV is when the lockdown really happens. And this is that window just before MTV. Yeah, Yeah. so yeah, as you said, they were probably the last people to seriously make it, you know, make a breakthrough through, shall we say, their own sweat and labor, as opposed to having other other options. And that first album was so good. I mean, it's impossible to believe that no labels wanted them. But Joan had been seriously tarred, I think, by the runaways. Legend, image, etc. And you know, why would a girl bat? You know, why would a, a girl rocker do any better than five girl rockers? Absolutely, and it's also she's playing glam rock and punk, yeah. both of which have failed in the U.S. And one thing I didn't really realize, you know, they they. This, Joan Jett is the one who breaks glam in the States. And and she's before Quiet Riot is covering Slade for a number one hit. She's before Motley Crue is getting played on the radio. She's really even before Motley Crue has formed. I think she's a massive yeah. influence on Motley Crue. And also the most commercially successful punk performer until Nirvana in the United yeah. States. Um, so it's this... And, yeah. She did it with arrows and Gary Glitter covers. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and I suppose if you are an American A and R man, and it's like, what's going to be the next big thing in America? Arrows and Gary Glitter covers are one of the last things you think of. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is the period when disco has just imploded and record sales actually took a massive decline, you know, from 79 to 81. The industry's in utter disarray. MTV hasn't come along yet. FM radio is almost completely calcified into this AOR journey sticks uh, classic rock yeah. format. And even with the success, the grassroots success that she's having, there's only one record executive who'll take a chance on her, and that's Neil Bogart, who's you know was the king of bubblegum with with Buddha Records. He's the king of disco. Also had Kiss with Casablanca Records. He forms a new label, Boardwalk Records, Boardwalk Records, just to put out Joan Jett. And, and when you when you think about it, you know you mentioned you know, a precursor, at least in the glam stakes, which was Kiss. And yes. he saw, yeah, he saw how huge they got. And Joan, well, you know, while Joan was never going to sort of dress up and play Black Diamond, there was a similar sensibility to what she was doing to what, how Kiss were dressing almost. It was that larger than life, fun, easy to stamp along to, you wanted to do it yourself. Yeah, it was pure punk with a lot of glam sprayed on it. Whereas metal with a lot of glam sprayed on them. Yeah, they're humble pie with makeup on and and breathing fire. Um, but definitely had the glam aesthetic, and and yeah, they were the one American band to to really succeed massively, coming from a glam starting point. And so, you know, they they renamed the Joan Jet album. It had been called Joan Jet in England, and when they were selling it out of the trunk of their car, they rename it Bad Reputation. It does very well, but then they do another album featuring I Love Rock and Roll as the single, and this thing sells 10 million copies over a decade. This thing is a massive, massive hit. And yet when Neil Bogart dies at age 39, she really never gets record industry support again. I mean, she'll have a couple more hits, but it, it's, you know, what, that's one thing that I, I grew up on Joan Jett. She was massive when I was an eighth grader and, and a freshman, but I never really understood how much she was fighting the industry. And even after she had made people fortunes, they still didn't support her. Yeah, um, and I mean, Joan, as she has proven time and time again, very, very strong-willed. And, you know, Bogart understood her and I think understood what made her tick, what kept her happy. And uh, you, can, you can throw Laguna in there, what made Laguna tick and what you know, made him happy. Other labels, they're just like, oh, yeah, you're going to do another bad reputation for us, aren't you? No. Yeah, I'm going to do fetish. And I think labels ran scared. Yeah, they were going to sign this woman now who was going to go her own sweet way, regardless of what the accountants and the statisticians and the focus groups said she should do yeah i mean she's not easy to handle and not somebody that you could just sort of pat benatar into an mtv video and and you know and as you point out in the book the 80s had more one hit wonders than the 60s and 70s combined and this is just a, yeah. an era of disposable pop and and joan 
continued to be a live draw throughout this whole period. And in the 90s, then becomes sort of an elder stateswoman for the riot girl movement. And in the 2000s, you know, is out there touring with much younger acts. And, uh, you know, one of the things I appreciate about this book is it's a real celebration of Joan Chet, who's just an absolute true rock and roll icon. I mean, I think the only peers of her generation I can think of would be Lemmy Kilminster from Motorhead and Dee Dee Ramone. I mean, these are the only people of that generation that followed up on the Keith Richards legacy of just embodying rock and roll for generations. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you picked that up from the book because that was what I was going for. There was a review, I can't remember if it was on um, Amazon or in a magazine, but somebody complaining, you know, well, we want to know all the dirt. And it's like, that's not what the book is. The book is about, you know, it's a celebration of what Joan has done and what she means and what she meant throughout that period. Yeah, yeah. I don't care about the, you know, the mucky stuff. Um, it's, you know, this is an amazing rock and roll story. And you could not, I don't think you could fictionalize Joan Jett's story. If you did, nobody would believe it. Yeah, the Runaways movie tried, but... Yeah, if that had its own sort of agendas and things. Um, I mean, Joan's story, if you actually look back over the last 50 years, there's not many people who have accomplished what she did and done so much of it under the radar. And without support of the industry. I mean, she absolutely, yeah. despite, you know, basically always being a major label artist, other than the brief period they were selling Blackheart Records out of the trunk of Kenny Laguna's car. I mean, she's she's always worked with the record industry and yet always been outside the record industry and still managed to, you know, thread that eye of the needle and break through in a massive, massive way that none of, you know, the Ramones never had that kind of success in America in their heyday later on. They've, you know, now we hear them at the baseball stadiums and they're as American yeah. as apple pie. But while they were alive, that did not happen for the Ramones. Certainly yep. didn't happen for the New York Dolls. You know, even T-Rex never really broke through in the States, had one hit single. Whereas Joan Jett became this great rock and roll American icon. And Dave, it's been great fun talking about her. The book is Bad Reputation, the unauthorized biography of Joan Jett. Our guest is Dave Thompson. Thanks so much for coming back to the show. Thanks very much. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate will have author Joel Selvin on to discuss his book, Hollywood Eden, Electric Guitars, Fast Cars, and the Myth of the California Paradise. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Let It Roll is dedicated to the memory of Ed Ward, Russell Thomas, and Danny Park. of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only. 
right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC.